Provoke podcast is brought to you by Provoke Media and produced by the international broadcast specialists, Marketeers. Support for this podcast comes from Notified, the integrated, intelligent and easy-to-use PR software. Get a free demo today at Notified.com. Welcome to the Provoke podcast. This is Arun Sudham and I'm joined today by Jonathan Hemus, who is founder of Crisis Management Consultancy Insignia, former global head of crisis at Porto Novelli, if I'm not mistaken, Jonathan. Correct. Um, he has written a new book called Crisis Proof, How to Prepare for the Worst Day of Your Business Life. Jonathan, thanks for joining the show. You're welcome, Arun. Good to be here. Let's start um, with the whole idea of what a crisis is and whether that's changed. Whenever we research the industry on the topics of most interest, particularly in-house, yeah. uh, and we ask them what is the, the topic of most interest to you, number one is crisis management uh-huh. and issues. Now, do you think that's always been the case? Or do you think that reflects um, perhaps the era that we're living in? Well, I think from a communication professional's perspective, and I certainly speak for myself, but I think I maybe speak for others within the profession as well. Crisis management and crisis communication actually is one of the most rewarding things that you can do. So I think from an individual communicator's Mm. point of view, it may partly be... Uh, at the top of the list because it's the thing that maybe gives you the most job satisfaction. For me, Mm -hmm. you know, a crisis is absolutely the moment at which the communicators come to the fore, as we know by their very nature, um, crises Mm -hmm. jeopardize reputation. And so, you know, if you're not always at the right hand of the CEO during business as usual, you almost certainly will be during a crisis. So I think, you know, it's the moment when communication really, really makes a difference to the long-term fortunes uh, of an organisation. I do think there are there are a new and broader range of risks these days. Um, you know, there's always been issues and crises to be managed, but there are new ones these days that maybe uh, I wasn't having to manage 25 years ago. Sure. We'll talk a little about that. It's interesting you talked about the value of the communications yeah. role um, being elevated yes. because of, of a crisis. And, and we've seen that, haven't we, with the pandemic, which is, I suppose, the ultimate crisis. Yeah. Um, one of the consequences of that, perhaps an unintended consequence, but not an unwelcome one in this industry, yeah. has been that uh, for many communicators, and this has come through in our research repeatedly, they feel that their function has never been more valued. Yeah, ab- absolutely, because typically in a crisis, there are two things that an organisation needs to do in order to successfully manage the crisis. One is to fix the problem, and the other is to retain the trust and confidence of its stakeholders, and that requires communication. Now. The interesting thing with the pandemic is no individual organization can fix the problem. So 
all organisations were left with really was the communication part of part of crisis management. I mean, there were decisions around are we going to um, shut our offices mm. in the early stages, but primarily, of course. The only thing organisations could do to uh, exert influence over the situation was to communicate well. And I think one of the other interesting things uh, with the pandemic was it really flagged up the critical importance of internal communication in a in a crisis. I think there's always a, an assumption uh, that the media is going to be your number one audience in any crisis. What was interesting with the pandemic was for most organisations, most businesses certainly, unless they got it horribly wrong, and some did, um, the media weren't focusing on individual organisations, but their employees certainly were. And, you know, ret retaining the trust and confidence of your people in a crisis and having them on side and reassured and confident uh, in the future is so important. So, yeah, the pandemic mm. has done a lot for bringing communication to the fore and more broadly crisis management to the fore. Mm. But like you said, not a crisis that, that can really be fixed. Correct. Um, our own, you know, every year we do a crisis review and we, we've um, interviewed you yeah. for, for this as well. Uh, it gets bigger and bigger every year. It, it may just be because we are, uh, are more aware of the different things that are happening around the world. Um, but, you know, an alternative view is that it's because corporate behavior is worse these days. Um, or maybe it's because it's easier for crises to become public um today compared to mm -hmm. some time ago which which of those interpretations do you think is most likely to be true um, probably both of those and other other mm -hmm. reasons too i guess the one that i would add to that yeah. is uh an increasingly skeptical stakeholder landscape you know we've seen the edelman trust barometer over the years and trust in authority whether it's politicians uh, or or business people has diminished over over the last couple of couple of decades at least and therefore i think people are much more challenging much more skeptical much more uh, willing to call people out if there if there is a problem um i think mm -hmm. as to whether corporate behavior has got worse my suspicion would be that it probably hasn't but that where that corporate misbehavior is happening uh, it's becoming much more visible than it ever was before and therefore requires managing whereby you know previously some of that misbehavior could be um, kept behind closed doors and maybe also benefited uh, wrongly through the kind of deference that doesn't exist anymore mm. so you talked about how people are more skeptical they're more likely to call out a crisis mm -hmm. does that mean that there are maybe more molehills than there are mountains i think it's a good it's a good question and i think for you know organizations and communications within those organizations certainly calibrating your response appropriately to a crisis is more important now than ever there is a danger to use your words of seeing a molehill as being a mountain and um, turning a molehill into a mountain by paying too much attention to it. So I think whilst there are uh, more potential incidents, issues and crises popping up all of the time, it is still important that the organisation and the communicators within it, yes, respond quickly, but don't respond 
immediately they take a considered approach to responding rather than a knee-jerk um, reaction. We all know that speed is important in a crisis, but mm. not at the cost of either getting the facts wrong or um, delivering that knee-jerk response, which actually may do more harm than good. Right, and, and also presumably taking some time to consider whether it's a crisis that, whether it is a crisis, whether it requires a response. Correct. Um, that, that seems to be something that companies don't all, always get right because there's so much going on all the time on social media. Yeah, ab absolutely. And, you know, you talked about the book and the, the, the real reason, one of the critical drivers for the book was to say, actually, it's what you do before the crisis that has much more influence around how well you will respond to it than actually what you do at the time that the crisis happens. Now, why do I say that in this context? Well, I say that because part of your planning and preparation for crisis response should be in advance kind of calibrating uh, what defines a crisis for your organization. So, you know, you can define levels of seriousness, levels of impact. You can also identify those crisis types which absolutely strike at the heart of the organization and have the power to do most damage and the ones that tend mm. to do that uh, are the ones which mm. cut across your values so you know there's work that can be done mm. in advance in yeah. terms of reputational risk assessment in terms of scenario planning which means that you're not making those really pressurized decisions around respond don't respond in a vacuum mm -hmm. without having thought through what the criteria or the triggers or the thresholds would be for for responding so don't wait mm -hmm. until the crisis happens to start figuring out whether this particular kind of event is a crisis or not do a reputational risk assessment consider what your values are do some scenario planning and define some criteria and thresholds ahead of time mm, that sounds eminently sensible uh, do companies do this kind of thing enough um our clients do <laughs> um but <laughs> clearly the fact that organizations are still making mistakes in a crisis would indicate that not all organizations do and i have been working in this area for 25 years now and in the first probably five years of that career i was constantly staggered that very big very successful organizations had not done thorough crisis communication planning and sadly I'm no longer surprised many if not most organizations have but there is still a very significant minority who have not done their um, planning and, and, and preparation beforehand and you know mm. I think one of the most difficult areas to plan for um, but which are potentially the most uh, damaging are those pure reputational risks and you used these words earlier on the ones that relate to behavior and ethics and frankly people um it's mm -hmm. it's kind of easy to plan for or conceive of you know a fire or a or a flood or maybe a cyber attack to actually conceive and plan for maybe you know someone very senior is committing fraud or maybe someone very senior uh, has been engaging in inappropriate sexual activity those are the kinds mm -hmm. of um, risks which are sometimes overlooked within con within conventional risk assessments are not planned for um, and therefore cause maximum damage when they when they occur 
The process of auditing risk mm-hmm. um, does that that I guess needs to include understanding where the skeletons are in in whatever closets companies have, and I guess being honest yes. about whether these things are likely to see the light of yeah. day. Um, that's a tough one, isn't it, for companies? You know, whether it's with people internally or or even external advisors like yeah. yourself there's always the kind of view that if 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 there's too much uh, investigation of these areas and then, then it might leak yeah i mean it it is a really tough one but i would say that the uh, enlightened organizations the best organizations the best led organizations and also those that are uh, most likely to protect their reputation in a crisis are the ones that are prepared to be um humble and open and transparent and Mm. want to know about those issues you know old expression but forewarned is forearmed um and you know the kind of organization Mm. i really worry about in terms of their vulnerability to a crisis is the one that says you know i don't want to hear bad news don't bring bad news to my door um let's you know let's keep our heads down and our ears and eyes shut um because it probably won't happen. And if it does, we will deal with it. So um, Mm. the most, say, professional, well-led organizations are open to looking at their own fallibilities and even hypothetical fallibilities. You know, there are some organizations who believe they are too well organized, too well run, too successful to fail or endure a crisis. And that simply isn't the case, you know, say the best leaders will say, look, we are tremendously successful. We have a fantastic reputation, but we are not going to believe that we are infallible. And Mm. I I guess looking at at the reverse of that, you know, who would have thought, for example, that an organization as, you know, well-established, successful, ubiquitous as Boeing, could have found itself in you know the middle of such a horrendous crisis 18 months ago the last really really big corporate crisis before the um, pandemic you know an organization as I say which has been right at the center of the world economy how could Mm. they get their response so wrong so um, it is about being open to risk it is about um, being prepared to plan for even things that you don't believe are possible within your organization it is almost about planning for the unthinkable mm. it's interesting you, you mentioned the word infallible it made me think of the technology sector uh, in particular the kind of new economy tech companies sometimes there's a that kind of startup yeah. zeal yeah sometimes it's a bit evangelical yes uh, and of course you go from that to the idea of of infallibility and then you look at some of the issues that a company like facebook has had do you see something in those types of companies that maybe makes them more fallible to crisis so i do see something in those types of companies and also sometimes in those types of leaders and Mm. um as you suggest clearly those you know those startups those startups those tech businesses and other kind of high growth fast growth businesses by their very nature they are led by you know charismatic driven innovative creative people um if they are you know amongst that successful bunch they're having a rapid 
uh, growth and, and, and rapid influence. And I think, um, you know, coming from a crisis management perspective, you then at some point get leaders and organisations that say, we've had a fantastic ride over the last year, two years, five years, however long that kind of fast growth period is. We were a startup. We are now an established business. And whilst we didn't need really or didn't have time or funds to plan for crisis in those very early days, we now need to professionalise the business and we now need to recognise that we have something to lose. We've got this great reputation. We've got a load of customers. We've got a brand that people admire. Now is the time to protect it. And I think I would say this, wouldn't I? But I think, you know, the leaders that do that and, you know, are the enlightened ones and they're the ones that will probably endure and they're the ones that will, you know, manage their challenges successfully. Um, those that don't are sometimes the ones that fly high, um, but then hit the ground uh, when they have their first big challenge. Mm, yeah, and you need a you need a level of of humility, Correct. I guess, as, as, as you as you said before. One of the the, the parts of your book that I was um, reading with some interest was about how you get companies to take uh, crises more seriously. And you talk uh, about the commercial side. You also talk about the personal yes. side. Let's talk about the commercial impact because one of the things that I have read mm -hmm. um, more than once is that a co company X will go through a, a, a terrible crisis. I think maybe Volkswagen is an example yeah. of this. And yet the impact on sales is negligible. Mm -hmm. uh, company Y also will go through, um, you know, I mean, I think maybe Facebook is, is also a good example of this, although user growth is slowing. Mm -hmm. I think revenues are fine. You know, is do you come across that view that actually these crises don't have any commercial impact? Um, and, and what is your response to that? So I guess my my experience and, you know, also the evidence of what I see is that um, most, the vast majority of big crises have a significant financial or commercial impact. And I guess in many cases, that is around the value of the organization. So if I go you know, back to Boeing, they lost about a third of their value uh, in the yeah. aftermath of um, of their crashes and ultimate grounding of the aircraft. I would say, you know, if we look at VW, um, even if even if sales um, haven't fallen, one one big cost, which is a real hidden cost, is how much management, senior senior management time has gone into addressing mm. that problem. I mean millions maybe billions of dollars of time has been diverted into responding to a crisis clearly there are the costs in terms of the um, fines and the legal action which is being taken um, i do believe there has been you know a shadow cast over their reputation as well so i think in many cases you can actually measure the financial cost in terms of the value of the organization or, or, or a dip in sales, even where that doesn't happen, I think there are very real commercial, financially uh, financially related costs, which might not be visible mm. to the outside world, but are still a significant cost to the organization. And I guess my final point would be, 
if I was running an organisation, I wouldn't be wanting to take the risk that I might be the one lucky organisation out of 100 that doesn't suffer uh, commercial mm -hmm. harm as a result of a crisis. Actually, one other thing to add on to that, um, the damage is caused by a mishandled crisis, not by the crisis mm -hmm. itself. So uh, many organisations mm -hmm. suffer crises but don't suffer a commercial value, but that's because of how they have responded mm -hmm. to them. Right. Okay. Understood. Um, you also talk in your book about the uh, the head of crisis management role. Yeah. Uh, and you point out that this is not standard. Yeah. At uh, in the corporate yes. world, there are more than I expected yeah. from reading your yeah. book. Um, why do you think uh, there aren't more heads of crisis management? I mean, I think it is. It's an unconventional role. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I now specialise in this area, um, but clearly, you know, at the age of 18, as I went to university and after university, I never imagined I would be a crisis management consultant. And, you know, even today, you're right, you know, when I tell people I work in crisis management, they kind of look at me quizzically and ask me to explain what, what that is. And I think that is the same within the corporate environment as well. I think um, that what we have seen over the last let's say five to ten years is an increasing understanding at a c-suite level of the value of reputation and the value of protecting reputation and therefore there are organizations although they are in the significant minority who have a, a permanent uh, head of crisis management but again to pick up your point about the book my one of the main reasons for writing crisis proof was to say in probably three quarters of organizations there is not a head of crisis management but instead that role is given to a much respected highly trusted individual within the organization who takes that role on alongside their responsibility for other things and often that person will be the head of communications and so the book really mm. is designed to give those people who are not crisis specialists a framework and some tools and some insights to help them to be mm. successful in that role because it's a critical role as we know on that worst day of your career the decisions and the communication that happens on that day can have very very long-term ramifications i'm going to come back to that worst day uh, of your business yes. life idea so is is should the head of crisis management be a communicator um i don't think there is a hard and fast rule i think the head of communications is well placed to play that role um because of the fact one of the key reasons is because communicators are very good at looking at the world from a stakeholder perspective and you know mm -hmm. in a crisis it is about um, focusing on the impact of what has happened on stakeholders and how they are perceiving what has happened rather than understandably under pressure sometimes the leaders focusing on what has happened to us the organization right. or me the individual and so i think that's one of the um, great strengths of communicators in crisis management in a best possible world you know i would want to see the head of communications if they are leading crisis management you know forming an alliance with the other functions that are very much 
uh, fundamental to crisis management. So, of course, that's legal. It'll be HR. It'll be business continuity. Mm -hmm. If there is such a function within the organisation, it could be risk. It could be security. But one of the worst mm. situations to be in is, you know, all of these people have a bit of a stake in crisis management, but they're not acting as a kind of coordinated mm. team. So like a cross-functional yes. team is, is could could work. We have to talk about legal. Yes. Um, I have, I have, I have actually, I'd written this down before because it, it's one of the most common things you hear in any crisis when the communications team will usually off the record blame the legal yeah. team for botching the crisis mm -hmm. response uh, often by removing any trace of humanity from the yeah. the uh, the messaging or communication is is that fair to always blame legal uh, and how how can these these two sides work better together so it's not fair to always blame legal um you know there are clearly stereotypes around you know the legal advice which is to say no comment or to your point make a statement devoid of all humanity you know the lawyers would stereotype the communicators as wanting to blab away about everything at the first <laughs> opportunity and uh, leave the organization hostage to fortune now of course um whilst that isn't you know entirely true there is some truth in the stereotypes but my view is uh in a well-functioning organization with proper professionals leading the legal and communication uh areas we both have a job to do we are both advisors to the ceo and we are both aiming um to work with the best interests of the organization at at heart and you know we work with some very and i hope this doesn't sound kind of patronizing very enlightened lawyers who understand that you know the detail of the law may say this but they recognize that there's a bigger commercial or reputational imperative which means that whilst the law may say this they are perfectly happy um, to endorse or support a course of action which you know sits outside of that letter of the law and again i would kind of come back to yeah the previous question given that this is such uh, a critical axis in a crisis the communicator and the lawyer you know my experience and my advice to anyone in that situation is to build those relationships beforehand one of the you know good things that can be done uh, ahead of time is to do some scenario planning with your legal team just you know the two teams sit down together okay if we had a cyber breach at what point would we communicate communicate to say straight away lawyers say not till day day 10 well hang on that's not going to work let's talk this through let's work out how can we make approval uh, easier better quicker what can we as the communicators do to help you help us can we draft some in principle materials now for you to have a look at in the event of a cyber attack so you know the worst situation is to have uh, confrontation between uh, lawyers and communicators during the crisis uh, best case is you know both parties respecting each other having built a trusting relationship and recognizing that they're actually both acting with the best interests of the organization at heart mm. you you mentioned the thomas cook example i, I think where there was no apology yeah. 
Um, and, and this was attributed, I think, to legal. Is that, is that justified um, in, in some cases? Because that's always the one that really rankles yeah. with the comms side, I feel. I mean, my, yeah, my, my advice as a communicator and as a crisis management expert would always to be to, well, to be a human being and to say what mm. a reasonable, compassionate human being would say. What I wouldn't say in the event of a crisis is, you know, I am t I am very sorry for everything that has happened. This is entirely our responsibility. And, you know, mm -hmm. we, we take on full responsibility for every element of this situation. What, what I would be expecting the organisation to say, particularly where there has been fatalities, is we are desperately sorry for what has happened and we will do everything in our power to put this situation right. So you take responsibility for, you know, addressing the situation and you express proper, full human compassion for what has, what has happened. And I think, mm. you know, again, talking with lawyers, the vast majority of lawyers are not concerned about uh, their leaders saying words similar to the ones that I've just uh, communicated. What they are concerned about is the organisation, as I say, taking on full responsibility at a very early stage. And I wouldn't want them to do that either, because what I've learned in crisis management is, you know, causes and blame are very easy to assign early, but are often misplaced. So it's not even accurate to kind of take responsibility in those very early stages. Mm. Good advice. Okay, let's end with a few quicker questions. Um, I think I know what your answer mm. to this one will be um, from the book, but I'll ask it anyway. Best crisis response you've seen? Um, the one that jumps into my mind, first of all, and that, that there are there are many, but I'm going to choose one which has a particular um, communication element and that was uh, Alton Towers uh, Merlin the mm. UK theme park yep. where uh, youngsters were trapped on a roller coaster with very severe injuries the things that impressed me particularly from a communication point of view with that situation was firstly the communication team what they did and in particular the online and the social media team so uh, within an hour of that incident happening the website had been changed you can imagine a theme park is usually full of cartoons and noise and laughing and all that kind of stuff promotion special offers it was immediately changed with a much more somber homepage with an appropriate message on a social media on the social media front uh, Alton Towers was excellent constantly updating information you know again in 25 years ago you must issue a statement today Alton Towers were constantly updating they were interacting with people who were asking you know reasonable questions um, so they were very engaging and at the end of that first day when I was looking at their Twitter feed and their Facebook page they had people commending them for their response the second and final element given time that I was hugely impressed with was their leader Nick 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 Varney um, who immediately went to the scene um, undertook media interviews and did exactly what we've just been talking about which was to accept responsibility for putting this situation right to express full 
and meaningful sympathy for those affected. And again, one of the quotes pretty early on was from the lawyer of the victims to be to, to say, you know, Merlin couldn't have done more to, you know, help help the families. Mm. So um, that well, would be one of the very good recent examples, particularly from a communication perspective. OK, all right. That's a good one. And now the worst that you've seen. Um, I I will go back to uh, one I've mentioned already again because it is fresh in the mind, and that is Boeing. Um, mm. I think when you have not one but two aeroplanes crash, killing over 300 people, um, for the decision to ground the aircraft to be taken by um, someone else, the Civil Aviation Authority, or rather, sorry, the Federal Aviation Authority, is not a good place to be in. I think then an unwillingness to communicate fully makes your situation worse. And then when it is uncovered, again, via um, legal investigations in the US, that the culture of your organisation actually was one of the uh, causes uh, of this of this happening, and that's in the um, in the investigation report. Um, then you are, you know, not in a good place, and that is why I think they lost so much of their value. It's why they lost their CEO, um, and I think there are lessons for all organisations in terms of avoiding uh, that fate. That's a good one. That's a good one. I don't think anyone will come at you for that one, so <laughs> you should be okay. <laughs> Um, so you talked before about the, the value of communications improving in a crisis. Um, the other thing I've noticed when we talk about crises at our events or with, with people like you is there's a certain amount of adrenaline involved in crisis management. Uh, do you think that sneakily comms people really love a good crisis? Um, yes. <laughs> and I don't think there is anything wrong in that because I think by enjoying a crisis I think it comes back to what we were talking about before that you feel that this is the moment that you can make a real difference it's not that everything else that you do doesn't make a difference but this could be catastrophic for the organization if it goes wrong or it could be reputation protected or it could be reputation enhanced all dependent upon what you do over the next 24 hours or week or month, however long the crisis endures. One thing I would add uh, to that, though, is you use the word adrenaline, and it's absolutely right. Literally, adrenaline um, starts flowing, both within the leadership team and within the uh, communicators. And I would, again, just emphasise, therefore, the importance of planning and preparation beforehand, because sometimes that adrenaline can cause us to take misplaced, misguided decisions to be a bit too gung-ho. And it's only through having a really robust crisis management plan, a framework for your response, training people in the skills they require in a crisis, and rehearsing with your leadership team how you would deal with a situation that you can um, negate an overflow of adrenaline give your leaders good advice and make really sound appropriate decisions which are in the best interests of the organization sure 
Yeah, that makes sense. But having said that, you know, comms people do love a good crisis. Do you not think it should be how to prepare for the best day of your business life? In in terms of a crisis being the best day of your of your business life. Exactly. Yep. The subtitle of your book. <laughs> so. I guess it depends who the who the reader of the book is. If you are um, if you are the leader of the organisation, it may very well be uh, the worst day of your business life because, as we touched on earlier, not just the business that you lead, but your own personal reputation and career is on the line if it goes if it goes wrong. Um, mm. But I think you make yeah. you make you make a good point and i've said earlier on it's what you do when the crisis happens that will determine the ultimate fate of the organization its reputation um maybe i need i need to write a, a sequel um which focuses <laughs> on the upside of managing a crisis well which absolutely i think could be subtitled how to prepare for the best day of your life and focus that one specifically at communicators well, let me know if you do. Um, the book is called Crisis Proof, How to Prepare for the Worst Day of Your Business Life. Jonathan Hemus, thank you so much. Thank you, Arun. For your time. Uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Take care. Likewise. Thanks, Arun. been listening to the Provoke podcast brought to you by Provoke Media and produced by the international broadcast specialists marketeers. Support for this podcast comes from Notified, the integrated, intelligent and easy to use PR software. Get a free demo today at notified.com.